As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello. And welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer this week. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The coronavirus has crushed the oil market. Prices fell by more than half last month. And as a three-year pact between OPEC and Russia comes to an end today, a price war is raging too. With demand imploding and supply high, the industry looks set to change dramatically. And as coronavirus lockdowns have embedded video conferences into daily life, lots of us are getting a good look into each other's homes. We give some tips on how to create the right impression. First up, though. Yesterday, America unveiled a plan to restore democracy to Venezuela and end the standoff between the country's autocratic president, Nicolas Maduro, and the opposition leader, Juan Guaido. I wanted to set up the framework for this pathway to democracy. Uh, broadly speaking, In a press would, conference, uh, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, laid out the proposal. Representing both sides would create a, an acceptable council of state to serve as the transitional government. He called for a power-sharing transitional government in Venezuela, followed by elections later this year. In exchange, America would lift the sanctions that have been turning the screws on the Maduro regime. Later that day, the Venezuelan foreign minister rejected the offer outright. But even so, it marked a shift in tone for the Trump administration. Just last week, the Department of Justice indicted Mr Maduro and some of his cohorts on charges of drug trafficking and narco-terrorism. As alleged... The Maduro regime is awash in corruption and criminality. Maduro and his other defendants have betrayed the Venezuelan people and corrupted Venezuela's institutions. While the Venezuelan people suffer, this cabal lines their pockets with drug money and the proceeds of their corruption. And this has to come to an end. What happens next could be a matter of life or death. As the COVID-19 pandemic sweeps across the world, it threatens to cause catastrophe in Venezuela. Not only is the country's economy already in tatters, its healthcare system is woefully unprepared. The pandemic will increase the pressure on Mr Maduro's regime, but could it also tighten his grip on power? President Maduro is in very, very dire straits. Stephen Gibbs is our Venezuela correspondent. Not only is he managing an economy that even before the whole coronavirus outbreak had shrunk 65% in the last five years, but added to that the fact that a global price of oil has collapsed, oil being Venezuela's key export, means that he really is against the ropes. And we've had a sign of just how much he is. In the last couple of weeks, his administration has asked the IMF for $5 billion dollars of financing, uh, the IMF really being portrayed as the enemy 
of the leftist revolution in Venezuela. And there he was asking for money from that institution. I should say the IMF said it can't help him out because its members are not clear about who actually is in charge of Venezuela, whether it is Maduro or Juan Guaido. As the pandemic begins to bite, just how bad are things likely to get on the ground? I mean, how well or ill prepared is Venezuela for an even worse crisis? Well, in terms of the health crisis, chronically ill-prepared. Venezuela sits in the bottom 20 countries of the world in terms of the preparedness of its health system for this sort of epidemic. I've been to Venezuelan hospitals and it is a disaster there. Many, many don't have reliable running water. Few have had basic medicines for years. And all the doctors I've spoken to just in the last few days say that this really would be a total disaster if a coronavirus hit Venezuela in a big way. But in spite of all this, the Venezuelan foreign minister has rejected the Pompeo plan. No real surprise there for months, really. President Maduro, while saying he's interested in dialogue, has also made it pretty clear that uh, there's no way he's going to stand down because the United States tells him to do so. Right. But even if the offer has been rejected, the Trump administration's latest approach seems to be quite a contrast to what's gone before. After all, it's only it's only less than a week since the administration indicted Mr Maduro and some members of his inner circle on drug trafficking charges. So what do you think explains the change in tone on the American side? I think we are getting mixed messages from Washington. And I think there is a bit of a divide about how to handle Venezuela, with the State Department pushing a slightly more diplomatic approach and other sort of hardliners pushed, some say, by the Florida senator Marco Rubio. And we saw the hard line, as you say, a week or so ago when 15 people were indicted, accusations that Mr Maduro and some of those close to him were effectively running a cartel. Uh, The allegation being that that group had, since the late 90s, in collaboration with the FARC guerrilla group in Colombia, had been exporting large amounts of cocaine to the United States. So two sides to that. One is that Venezuela is now run by not even just a corrupt government, but a criminal gang that's sort of masquerading as a government. Others in the State Department saying, you know, Maduro clearly, although they don't like to admit it, is very much in charge. If we're going to get some sort of resolution to this, we have to get his team and the Guaido team together and some sort of transitional government and then elections. And will either of these tactics or the combination of these tactics succeed in persuading Mr Maduro to give up and to step aside? There's been absolutely no sign from President Maduro that he's prepared to chuck this in. And, you know, six months ago, John Bolton, then the National Security Advisor in the White House, was saying, you know, this is your chance. If you want to leave the country, you can go and sit on a nice beach somewhere, as he put it, and live in exile. Uh, That was rejected, of course, out of hand by President Maduro. But the US tactic is really appealing not to Maduro, but the people below him who might ultimately betray Maduro. But he does have loyalty in the senior ranks of the army. So it does seem a bit like wishful thinking on the part of the US, hoping that they can make a flip as easily as they perhaps suggest they can. 
And what role might the global pandemic play in all this? I mean, clearly the Trump administration sees it as a lever, as a way of increasing pressure on Mr Maduro. But we've seen in other countries run by authoritarian rulers, most recently in Hungary this week and also in the Middle East, that rulers of this type have almost been using the pandemic as a way of tightening their grip on power. Do you think the same is true of Mr Maduro as well? I think it could go either ways, to be honest. Uh, you know, those of us that have been watching and analysing Venezuela for a few years, one thing we've been saying to each other is, if this is going to end, it's probably something we never quite expected. It will be some outside force that we didn't really see coming. And here is a potential example of that, an extraordinary global pandemic that is upsetting the world order and the world economy in the way no one could possibly have predicted and that might cause an instability within the Venezuelan regime that could bring about change. But against that, you are right. This is a bit of a heyday for authoritarian governments. This is their opportunity to say to everyone, right, no public meetings. We're keeping a very clear eye on you. They can suggest that opposition politicians, you know, are spreading the virus by leaving their homes, etc., etc. And we've had plenty of signs that that is the route President Maduro is preparing to take. So there is a chance that, no, this won't be the destabilizing thing for his authoritarian government. It could be seen by some people within the Maduro regime as a bit of an opportunity to take a hard line and really destroy the opposition once and for all. Stephen, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist, a trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Just six months ago, attacks on oil facilities in Saudi Arabia caused a historic spike in the price of Brent crude. Oil prices are up after weekend attacks in Saudi Arabia halted production. In Europe, Brent crude oil was trading at almost $68 a barrel, a rise of more than 12%. Half a year later, oil prices have just had their worst month ever because the coronavirus pandemic has hammered demand. The move lower in crude has been fast and furious. It's a day traders around the world will remember for a long time and there could be more pain to come. In some parts of Texas, a barrel of oil has been going for less than the price of a pint of beer in London, and there's no relief in sight. Today marks the end of a three-year supply pact between Russia and the 14 members of OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, designed to stabilise the global price. The two sides have fallen out and are preparing to pump record amounts of oil to gain a greater share of the global market. But in the light of the pandemic, that price war is looking increasingly irrelevant. In early March, when Russia declined OPEC's plea to extend the agreement to lower production and therefore prop up prices, 
And then Saudi Arabia responded to Russia's refusal by prompting this huge price war. It really stunned the oil market. Charlotte Howard is our energy and commodities editor. But by the end of March, something even stranger happened, which is that the collapse of the OPEC deal didn't seem to matter that much because there's no OPEC deal that could have been big enough to counter this obliteration of oil demands caused by COVID. So, Charlotte, can you tell us just how bad a month it's been for the oil market? The oil price fell by more than half from the beginning of March to the end of it. If you think about it, in the past 35 years, there have been only two years when oil demand has fallen year over year. And that was in 2008 and in 2009. And analysts now can't really update their models fast enough to account for the drop-off in demand for jet fuel and gasoline. But some people think that for the first half of the year, oil demand could be down 20% compared with the same period last year. It could be higher than that. I mean, it's just... Anyone's guess, the market has never seen anything like this. So where does this extraordinary decline in price lead the American fracking industry? Fracking, of course, is what has made America into the world's biggest oil producer. It's a question of how quickly frackers will pare back their own production. So in recent weeks, you have heard from big independent fracking companies that they plan to lower capital spending. Um, Production in American shale may decline, but it's not actually as fast as you might think. And there are a few reasons for that. Once you've drilled a well, it's not that expensive to keep pumping oil from it. So you may see a decline in drilling of new wells, but existing wells aren't going to be immediately shut in. Chevron, which is, of course, a enormous international oil company headquartered in America, cut its capital spending for this year by 20%, but its production overall is expected to remain flat compared with levels in 2019. So you are going to see a lot of economic pain among shale companies, but it won't necessarily immediately translate into a huge drop in American production. What's the worst that could happen for the U.S. oil industry and for fracking in particular? It depends on which American oil company you're talking with. So ExxonMobil or Chevron, they don't want the government to step in and do anything artificially to bail out shale producers. They'd be happier for some of the independent shale producers that cannot operate particularly profitably, that have high debt levels, for those companies to go bust so that there can be consolidation within the industry that most impartial observers think is necessary in order to get the scale and lower costs that are needed to make shale competitive in the long run. If you're looking at an independent producer and the prospect that prices could continue to be you know, below $20, that is hugely damaging to them. And it's hard to imagine that there won't be a big pile of dead shale companies at the end of this. And looking farther afield, there are plenty of countries that are a lot less well off than the United States and thoroughly dependent on oil. So the outlook for them presumably is pretty bleak. There are many oil-producing countries that even before the drop-off in prices were really very fragile. So Iraq has become, in recent years, a huge oil producer as its oil industry has, has gotten going again in the wake of the American war in Iraq. But there's also been a lot of instability, a change in government. The decline in oil prices is particularly ill-timed for a country like Iraq. Then you go over to Venezuela, which of course has been in economic freefall for some time. This is a further problem for them that will add to the instability there. And I suppose the question everyone would be asking is, could the price fall even further? It was, what, $50 at the beginning of March. It's around $20 at the end of March. Could it go further still? 
One of the things that analysts are watching closely is what happens with oil storage. So if supply of oil exceeds demand for it, presumably some of the extra oil would go into storage tanks. But the capacity for storing crude and for storing crude products like gasoline and jet fuel is not infinite. And so if you see storage starting to reach capacity, then you have an even bigger problem where the price drops even lower And then that prompts some oil companies or oil-producing nations to have to shut in their wells, which they're very reluctant to do because it's costly, it's hard to get those wells back up and running again, and in some cases those wells may remain shut permanently. And what might be the longer-term consequence of the sort of demand and supply shocks we've seen in the past few weeks? Have these got the potential to reshape the whole industry, do you think? There have been points in the oil market's history where there's been something very dramatic that happened that then prompted the industry to look quite different than it did before. So in the late 90s, there was a huge oversupply of oil, and you saw massive consolidation that led to the likes of ExxonMobil, the combined entity of two of the world's biggest oil companies. And I do wonder, in the current environment, the oil industry was already under stress before this price war began. Companies were under pressure to respond to shareholders who are uncertain about climate change. The shale industry was booming in terms of production, but investors had completely fallen out of love with it, were not convinced of shale's profitability in the long term, and had really withdrawn capital, were not interested in investment. And so given that the oil industry was already at a precarious time to have this enormous shock that has been brought by COVID, I think it will be interesting to see once the dust has settled a bit, how dramatically the industry has changed. Charlotte, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Around the world, coronavirus lockdowns have driven our professional and personal lives out of the physical realm and into the virtual one. Many of us are now spending hours on video conferences and in the process becoming intimately familiar with our co-workers' kitchen layouts and wall hangings. Never have so many ceilings been broadcast to so many for so long. Since working and entertaining online pose new challenges and require new thinking, we rang up Emma Duncan, The Economist's senior policy editor, for some, uh, suggestions. see you. I'm just casually working from home in this elegant and practical workspace that I just cobble together. And you too can have it all if you follow my top tips for video conferencing. Tip number one, see the opportunity. For those unused to working from home, the sudden disappearance of boundaries between domestic and professional life can be trying. Letting crowds of colleagues and acquaintances peer into your life can be unsettling, but it has one advantage. It opens up new opportunities for one-upmanship. Oh, what's that behind me? It's just my top-of-the-range skis that I'll be using probably in an expensive Latin American resort when all of this is over, just accidentally within view of my Zoom meeting. Tip number two, make your space camera ready. 
Even cramped living quarters can be subtly altered to create an impression of space. Simply move the desk to one side of the room, the sofa to another and the bed to a third. A lick of different coloured paint on all of those walls. A couple of trompe posters of windows looking out on rolling countryside on one side and a secluded beach on the other. And voila! Over the course of a few meetings, your studio flat is transformed into a mansion on an extensive beachside estate. If you have the necessary equipment and technical skills, of course, you can opt for a virtual background instead and appear to be hovering over the city in your personal airship or relaxing on your yacht. Tip number three. Props. Now, if your bookshelves are visible, rearrange the books so that the titles behind your head suit the occasion. For the intellectual soiree, the obscure Scandinavian novelist and the existential philosopher you never quite got round to reading will do nicely. For the professional backdrop, reach for Sun Tzu and Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Uh, and do remember that uh, high-definition cameras have sharp eyes. Well-thumbed copies of The Joy of Sex are best left out of sight. Tip number four. Show off your electronics. Now, electronics should, by and large, be invisible, as there's an inverse relationship between social status and size of televisions. High-end audio gear or home cinema equipment, however, is acceptable in the background, suggesting, as it does, a superior, artsy approach to entertainment. Steering the conversation towards the merits of valve amplifiers or the texture of a director's oeuvre will let you advertise its presence in your house. Ostentatious sports equipment, golf clubs, skis, the purdy, can be borrowed from friends and left just visible in a corner implying a vast hinterland of expensive entertainments that are awaiting you once lockdown is over. Tip number five. Distract your children. At the sudden appearance of screaming, chocolate-smeared children will undermine the impression of domestic perfection. Best if you can to hide them away in another room. Minecraft might keep them occupied. Or dress them smartly and persuade them to serve you with trays of tea and biscuits or canapes as appropriate. Either approach will convey the desired impression of domestic order and deference to contrast pleasingly with the yells and curses to be heard in the background of your friends and colleagues' homes. In these dark times, it is essential to maintain some of the pillars of normal life, such as showing that you're doing so much better than everybody else. For The Economist, I'm Emma Duncan. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow.
You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.